even though the economy is growing again and we've added more than 750,000 private sector jobs this year, the hole the recession left was huge and progress has been painfully slow. Planet Money from National Public Radio. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. And that, of course, was President Obama. You heard at the top, he was speaking at a news conference. Today is Friday, September 10th. Today on our show, Econ 101. It's back to school time. Usually that brings to mind misery. The alarm clock goes off. You get your little body out of bed. You drag your heavy backpack to the school bus stop in the dark. But let's face it, you are listening to Planet Money. You liked school. (laughs) And you liked college, because when you were lucky, you got that awesome professor whose first class made you really, really psyched, introduced you to ideas that changed the way you think. So today, that is what we're doing. We're going to bring you excerpts from a couple killer lectures, tuition-free. First, our indicator from Professor Jacob Goldstein. Today's indicator is a reminder that tuition is, in fact, usually not free. Uh, (laughs) That indicator, 31%. Uh, That's how much tuition and fees rose at private colleges and universities in the past decade. That's according to a recent report from the federal government. For public schools, the jump was even bigger. Tuition and fees rose 46% for in-state students. And these numbers are are adjusted for inflation. So that means this really is a big jump in the price of college. So, Jacob, if I think about public schools, meaning like state schools, right, they get a bunch of money from the state government. So we know state governments are having a hard time. They're cutting money to these schools. I can understand why they might having to raise tuitions to make up for that. But what's happening with the rest? So, so there are a lot of possibilities that you hear people talk about, and most of them sort of make sense as far as they go, but none really feels in, entirely satisfying. But, but here are three that I've come across that seem pretty compelling. Okay. One, college education is actually worth more than it used to be. The wage gap between people with college degrees and those with only a high school education has been getting wider, right? So if a college degree is actually more valuable, it's economically rational for colleges to charge more. All right. Two, college education is labor intensive. You've got to pay a lot of professors to teach students. So it doesn't lend itself to the productivity gains that you see in, say, manufacturing, where you have new technology that makes manufacturing cheaper. So, you know, TVs or whatever get cheaper and cheaper over time. In other words, robots can't teach comparative lit, is what you're saying, right? Right. right. Not yet, anyway. (laughs) Right. But this actually doesn't make sense to me, really, because... I do feel like college is a really, really inefficient arena, right? Like textbooks are really expensive. Lectures are sort of long and boring. And is the lecture the best way to deliver knowledge anyway? I mean, are you telling me there isn't any way to get productivity gains in in the university system? No, no, those are all good points. And and there are people who talk about administrative bloat and who, you know, have, have these big picture ideas for reforming education. And it'll be interesting to see if that happens. But I think one of the reasons that hasn't happened so far is actually number three. All right, bring it on. Number three is that colleges don't really have to compete on price. So that means all these kind of things that you're talking about, Alex, they might make sense, but there's not a competitive pressure for them to try and be more efficient. Uh, There are a few reasons that there's not that much price competition. You have the federal government subsidizing student loans, so, so that reduces students' incentives to bargain shop when they're looking for a college. And with more selective colleges, they compete on on other things besides price. They compete on academic reputation, 
education. They compete on star faculty. They compete on fancy buildings. You know, you're not going to hear Stanford say, hey, come to Stanford because we're cheaper than Princeton. I'm going to say we have better food and a more awesome climbing wall at the gym. And a better mascot. <laughs> the tree is not a better mascot. <laughs> no, they don't say that. <laughs> yeah, the, the mascot they don't say. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. So, Alex, we've been having a really good time here this week reaching out to different economics professors, asking basically, what is your best lecture? What's the best lecture you've given or the best one you've been in? And we've gotten really great and really interestingly different answers. We're going to bring you a couple today. All right. Class is in session. It's time for you to meet your first professor of the day, Alex Tabarak. He teaches at George Mason University and co-wrote a textbook with Tyler Cowan, who we've had on the podcast before. They also write the blog Marginal Revolution. So just to set the scene a bit, Tabarak is up on stage in front of this huge class. He's wearing a wireless mic. He walks around. It's really like a, a performance. You know, he, he says he feels a bit like Oprah. And he's got, you know, the students have no idea who he is, so he's got to hold their interest, right? And he told me he starts out with this story. Actually, it's a puzzle. I start by telling this. As many people know, the British government once hired sea captains to ship convicted felons uh, off to Australia. So, Alex, this was like in the 1700s, and the captains of the ships were taking really, really bad care of the prisoners. It was not uncommon for the prisoners to arrive in Australia dead, for them to die along the way in the voyage. And this was a big scandal at the time, because sure, they were prisoners, but... For the British public, look, you know, as a society, we got to do better. This is totally inhumane. Uh, about a third of the males on one particularly horrific uh, voyage uh, died, and, and the rest of them uh, arrived uh, beaten, starved, and, and sick. I mean, they were just they were, they were hobbling off uh, those who were lucky enough to survive. So it really was terrible, terrible conditions. And this was creating headlines in the papers and... and... Absolutely, absolutely. So they tried things like, uh, you know, require the, the captains to have a doctor on board, to uh, have them, you know, have the lemons, you know, prevent scurvy, all kinds of things uh, of that nature. The clergy were appealing to these captains to kind of uh, uh, be, be, you know, for, their, for humanity's sake to take care of these guys. And did any of that work? It didn't. Nothing. Nothing seemed to work. And they, it just this seemed to be a real problem they couldn't solve. And it's at this point that the hero enters the story. Listeners, you may not be surprised to learn that this being an Econ 101 opening lecture, the hero is an economist. The economist suggested something new. Can you guess what this economist suggested? All right, class, anyone? Oh, oh, I know. Anyone? I know. Anyone? Right here. Right here. All right, Alex. <laughs> uh, okay, so they did the lemons. That didn't work. Uh, the clergy, that would have been a suggestion, but no, that didn't work. I'm going to say that the economist suggested that the government inspect the boats to make sure that they were sanitary and, and clean. That's a really nice idea. He says they tried that and it didn't work. All right, how about this? I bet you they required all the ship captains to complete some training and get a license. So that not just anybody can become a ship captain, but you have to be trained in how to properly maintain conditions while you're transporting prisoners across the ocean. That's another good idea. It didn't work. Anything else? Uh, maybe they tried to professionalize the captain field and, and uh, with like raising their wages. He said they tried stuff like that and didn't work. All right. Pencils down. Ready? Here is the answer. And what he suggested was instead of paying for each prisoner that walked on the ship... In Great Britain, the government should only pay for each prisoner who walked off the ship in Australia. And in fact, this was the suggestion which in 1793 was adopted and implemented. And immediately, 
their survival rate uh, shot up to 99%. 99% from, 99. you said on one boat, a third of the people had died. Exactly. And one uh, astute observer uh, commented that economy beat sentiment and benevolence. So this really is the first lesson of economics. Incentives matter. So I like this story, right? You reward the captains for the behavior you want. You reward them for keeping the passengers alive. And they manage to keep the passengers alive. It's, you know, this is this incentive question. It's at the heart of all kinds of things that we talk about on the podcast, right? You know, if you look at the tax code, right, every single line is there is is an incentive to buy a house or to get solar panels or for businesses to invest or not invest in this or, you know, it's all about incentives. I do want to point out here, Alex Tabrak, his story, you know, he works at George Mason University, which has a pretty strong free market bent. And I, and, you know, his story does conveniently <laughs> lay out a scenario in which government is making all sorts of laws that don't work and just aren't enforceable. Like well-meaning, but ultimately. Well-meaning, but ultimately getting it wrong and doing and, you know, sort of incentivizing the wrong thing. Right. Although, you know, in the end, right, they do get it right after a number of trials and, and you get a lot of, you know. And the passengers do fine. After they talk to an economist. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I did ask him about his choice of anecdote, though. I do have some free market libertarian leaning, <laughs> so I, I, I guess I'm happy with, uh, with that lesson. Um, though I, I really want to get this idea that incentives are important, because what you want to do is align self-interest with the social interest. That's what Adam Smith's Invisible Hand is all about, aligning self-interest with the social interest. The, the captains had good incentives before. It's just that they had the incentives to do the wrong thing, like keep food from the prisoners and then sell the food in Australia. So they had incentives. They, just, they were the wrong incentives. So free market libertarian leaning aside, though, this is something that pretty much every economist would agree on. It can be really hard to craft the right incentives. And that brings us to our next professor, Charlie Whelan. He identifies himself as a middle-of-the-road practical economist. He teaches at Dartmouth and at the Public Policy School at the University of Chicago. He also wrote the book, Naked Economics. And the story that Charlie Whelan tells in class about incentives takes place in Mexico City, where pollution from cars is terrible. Insufferable. I mean, this is not like a modest problem. This is I'm having trouble seeing you across the street kind of pollution. So he said, look, let's just ration driving. So the plan was clever and it was simple. We're going to make it so that one day a week you can't take your car on the road. And the way they did it was if your license plate ends the number five or six, you people can't drive on Mondays. If your license ends in a seven or eight, you can't drive on Tuesdays or something like this. This was in 1989. It seemed like a great plan. It seemed fair. It seemed easy to police because police can just look at the license plate numbers out there on the road and say, that's okay for that car to be on the road, not that one. It seemed great. And yet... And yet air pollution gets worse. How does that happen? <laughs> well, that happens because everybody kind of liked driving all the days. So you're trying to get them to do something they don't want to do. And they're going to try and find a way to drive as often as they can. So it turns out that people who can afford it will buy an extra car or they will keep their old car. And then instead of trading in, they'll buy a new car and they'll just put a different license plate on each one. The problem with that is a lot of these old cars are the worst polluting vehicles. And we've gotten so much better with our clean air technology that the new cars are dramatically cleaner than the old cars. So the longer you keep these old cars around, and what this effectively does is prolong the lifespan of these real beaters, 
the worse the pollution is from the average car on the road. It means that your typical fleet out there is now more polluting than it was before you implemented this rationing. So, so did this happen? Yes. So there was a <laughs> famous journal article that said, you know, not only did this not work, it was actually counterproductive, that it made air quality worse. And some of my students also pointed out, I've had a number of Mexican students over the year, that there was also a poor man's solution, which is you could just go to the market and buy a second license plate. And then every morning you go out and change your license plate, uh, which is probably better than buying the second car, because at least that's pollution neutral. You're still driving the same car as opposed to kind of buying a beater and keeping it around. So the Mexican government is now trying a different incentive to encourage people to buy more efficient cars and get rid of those beaters. Um, They're basically saying if you buy a new fuel-efficient car, you can drive all you want. You don't have to stop driving on another day. So far, though, air quality in Mexico is still pretty terrible. And this is the danger with all incentives, right? They can backfire. You think you have a great idea. You have a great idea for how to encourage, say, banks to take on less risk or something. And then the regulation gets followed, but it doesn't get followed in the way that you intended. My lesson to my students is if you if they want to get to the other side of the wall and you've built this wall and there's something really attractive on the other side, they will go through, they will go over, they will go under, they will go around, and they'll just sit in a room figuring out ways to do it. So I think you have to be very careful about the incentives that you create. So, Alex, I've been thinking about incentives. This isn't a perfect metaphor, but sort of like a powerful rocket. It's like if you point it in the right direction, you're going to get going where you want really, really fast. But it can also be very hard to steer. So, you know, incentives are, are one of the most powerful things a government can do, right? You write a few lines in the law and you can entirely change how a country behaves. So you set up a driving rule in Mexico. People do react strongly. If you do it right, they drive less. If you do it wrong make pollution worse. And the problem is that even economists like Charlie Whelan have a hard time figuring out which incentive is going to give you the result you want. So, for example, Charlie Whelan had this experience in his own life where he set up an incentive structure and it didn't go so well. And this story might remind some listeners of that allowance podcast that we had a couple of weeks ago. Right. So one of the things I told my students this year is, you know, for year after year, I tell them, beware of unintended consequences, follow the incentive, so on. Well, This year, we were in Hanover, New Hampshire. I was always wearing my slippers around the house because it was so cold. But I'd always leave them someplace. I could never find them when I wanted. I've got this seven-year-old who's a real hustler. And I started paying him a dollar to find my slippers. (laughs) I'd be lying on the couch. You know, I'd need to go out and walk the dog or get to pay my... CJ, find my slippers. I'll give you a dollar. And he'd go running off. And I mean, he really... He's got a great work ethic. He comes back 15 seconds later with the slippers. Dollar doesn't matter to me. He's excited. Well, we discover, actually, he admitted to his credit about four months later that at some point he started finding my slippers and hiding them. (laughs) And he'd take them down to the furnace room so that he could then be paid a dollar to find them. And so to me, this was sobering even to me after having taught about incentives and unintended consequences. I love that. So it started as a simple plan for Charlie to get his slippers, ended up turning his young son into a criminal. I asked if there was a clawback provision. He says he he thinks he's going to reward his cleverness. Let us know what you think of today's show, Planet Money at NPR.org. Or if you have your own econ lecture that you've heard or given, we'd like to hear about that as well. We've been gathering a bunch of other greatest hits from Econ 101 classes, and we're going to be bringing them to you on future podcasts. One lecture we will not be bringing you, though, is Alex Tabrock's second lecture. Uh, why not? 
That's when he does all the math. <laughs> right? That's what you get at Planet Money. All the fun, none of the math. I like math. I know you do. <laughs> all right, that does it for us. I'm Alex Bloomberg. I'm David Kestenbaum. Thank you for listening. <laughs>